Hey, this is Sean Tepper, the host of Payback Time, an approachable and transparent podcast on business investing and finance. I like to bring on guests to hear authentic stories while giving you actionable takeaways you can use today. Let's go. My next guest has a background in investment banking, mergers and acquisitions, and investing. In fact, he led a successful career in investment banking that allowed him to retire at age 39 and thereafter start several small businesses. This eventually led up to a career as a course creator. Now today, he has dozens of courses on Udemy with over 100,000 students and over 9,000 reviews. Please welcome John Cooley. John, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. I'm very honored to be invited onto your podcast. Awesome. Well, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background? Um, yeah, let's start with uh, sort of English boarding school educated, which um, is a genre almost in its own right. I then went to Cambridge University, uh, where I studied a combination of history and geography. And after that, completely lost, um, took leave of my senses and joined the army. So I became a, a British army officer for um, about five years, um, which was um, a very educational experience in its own right, but left in 1988 and started back at the bottom as a graduate trainee in in finance. So I went to work for a company called uh, Security Pacific Hawkevet in the city of London. And I was there for four years. I then got asked to join a company called Westdeutsche Landesbank to do um, European mergers and acquisitions. And I stayed there for eight years. I then, you, you sort of stay, to stay in a job and then somebody invites mm -hmm. you to go and do another one, which is always quite nice. So I then got asked to run um, IT services M&A in Europe for SG Cowan, which I did for a year and then basically retired, age 39, set up my own boutique so that I could do whatever I wanted, but I haven't had a paid job since uh, 2001. And so we ran this boutique, and actually the boutique's still there, but I left in in uh, 2008, uh, the worst possible timing with hindsight, to start another boutique with another chum, uh, which we started in 2008, and we actually closed in 2016. And then in the mean in middle of that, with 2008 teaching me that I had to start doing some marketing for the first time in my life, I then got into the, the thing which is really what I'm most enjoying at the moment, which is sharing my financial knowledge and experience with my online education. And so I've really been an on, uh, pretty well a, a full-time online education course creator since probably about 2016, 2017. Although when I say full-time, you know, it's whenever I mm -hmm. basically feel like doing it. So nobody's holding my feet to the fire. <laughs> not like the good old days and then yeah. mergers and acquisitions. No, absolutely not. No, yeah. it's it's a very different, um, you know, no more 18 hour days and flying all over the place to go and do meetings in four different right. continents. You know, so much easier. Yeah. Now, was that that was mergers and acquisitions? What did you do any work within investment banking as well? Well, that was in, that was as an investment banker. So I was ah, a, got it. Uh, ultimately a director of an investment okay. bank. And then I was obviously a managing director of my own investment banking boutique. Yep. But I started off um, my first four years at Security Specific Orgavet were actually in in the stockbroking side. So I learned, I did four years um, floating companies, uh, doing rights issues, 
and all that sort of stuff. We were involved in a number of the privatizations that were happening in the UK at that sort of time and in some of the takeover work and but from the stockbroking side of it, which is quite, quite interesting. And then the 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 we would differentiate between stockbroking and investment banking, where you're do, you're running transactions more than issuing shares and managing shares that are issued in the stock market. Gotcha. Gotcha. No, it sounds like your experience then gave you great, you could say a foundation of how to look at companies, how to look at businesses, right? When I was at, at Hogavet, I had to do stock exchange exams, which taught me about financial analysis and all that sort of stuff and the sure. regulation and compliance. And and yeah, so it was a very, very good grounding. And I also tucked in a, an MBA. I did an evening MBA for two years while I was there as well to really give myself a grounding in finance. Gotcha. Now, when you were looking at businesses, were you looking just at the financials? Or were you factoring other things like, you know, the the business industry it's in? How long will this industry be around? Maybe the competition, maybe the leadership team, things like that. Well, as an, an investment banker, firstly, um, I had a sector specialization. But I started in building materials. I then went into tech uh, in about '97. A decision made for me by my employers who were employing more resources into tech. So I've been in tech since 97. So you started off by understanding the sector and who was doing what and the different types of companies in the sector, uh, the size of the companies, you know, who was acquisitive, who was likely to be acquired, who was public, who was private, who was private equity owned, all the different components of the landscape of that sector, which helps you to then start thinking about the strategy the companies need to employ to be successful. And of course, then when you go and talk to prospective clients, you know, you need to have a good understanding of who their competitors are, you know, what the competitive strengths and weaknesses are, what they might be doing. You were trying to recommend strategies to them, which uh, inevitably involved them making acquisitions or doing deals because that's what paid our bread and butter. Um, you very yeah. went in there and said, you're a fantastic company, don't do anything. Because um, <laughs> you wouldn't get paid very much for that. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Now, the reason I asked that question is, I want to transition here to your personal journey with investing. So, you know, back in the, the 80s and 90s, is that when you got, like, you started investing for yourself? Yeah, I was, well, I was very interested when I was in the army about in finance, but didn't really do much investing beyond buying privatization shares and wasn't really in a, in a financial position to do very much. And the, when I was actually working for the investment banks, I did do a little bit, a little bit of buying and selling, but part of the problem I had was that the companies I knew a lot about and would be interested in investing, I was effectively handcuffed from investing in them because I was speaking to the senior management. I had um, a lot of inside information. And as you probably appreciate, when you're doing any sort of dealing, you're assumed to be guilty until you're proven innocent if you're accused of insider dealing. So I pretty well stayed out of the, the stock market. I did um, make a number of uh, rather frothy investments in around 1999-2000, some of which would have come good if I'd kept them for long enough. But I sort of cleared out the portfolio back in you know, about the sort of the teens. And I, I had various holdings like Microsoft and Broadcom and things like that, which had I kept them for another five or 10 years would have actually uh, come very good for me. Uh, with, there's a lesson in that in its own right. So, right. you know, I had at that stage, though, because when you're doing M&A deals, you know, you do a lot of financial modeling, you do a lot of analysis of the financial statements. And therefore, I had a very deeply ingrained understanding of the numbers. 
and overlaid that with a strategic appreciation of business. So I was able to, and I am able to look at companies relatively quickly. Uh, it takes a little while for me to get around a 10K, but I can cope with a British format report and accounts much more quickly to understand, you know, what's going on, what's been going on, what's potentially likely to go on, although none of us can see the future. So it gave me that grounding. Um, I, it's only really been in the last few years that I've started really doing uh, investment. And in fact, I took over um, control of my own pension funds, and that's not an inconsiderable amount of money. Uh, and I now run that. So it's a it's a healthy seven-figure portfolio that I manage. And I'm, you know, very happy and very relaxed about doing it, you know, even in the current market conditions, which have been a bit helter-skelter-ish for the last um, 12 months. Right. right. No, thanks for that context on your background there. What I'd like to do next is let's actually drill into your strategy. I know our listeners are going to want to know is how does John actually you know, assess a company from A to Z. We don't have to spend hours here, of course, but just give us a high level. What are you looking for? Um, I think if I say that I, I come from the Warren Buffett School of Investment, you'll start to get a feel for the the approach I take. So I'm not a trader. Um, I don't buy and sell frequently. I buy and hold. And what I'm really looking for is the long-term potential. I'm, I'm actually seldom worried about the current valuation of the business. If I think it's a really good business, I'm planning to hold it for 10 years. And I think it'll pay me back in that time, uh, whatever price I go in at. And it's more difficult to try and guess timing. I mean, had I started trying to time the market in 2016, thought, oh, I'll wait till there's a downturn, um, I would have looked to right, Charlie. But as it is, I take a view on the companies. Most of my investments are around the, the tech sector because I understand tech very closely. I don't invest in things I don't understand. So I don't understand, for instance, biotechnology. So I wouldn't know where to start investing in. And if I wanted to invest in biotech, because I thought maybe after the pandemic, there's an awful lot of investment going into it, I would do it through a fund and allow the fund managers, the an active fund, allow the fund managers to make the, the selections because they have that expertise. So the circle of competence that Buffett talks about is very important. Yeah. Um, so I look at a you know, look at a stock and I'm looking for a company that is going to hopefully double and maybe double again over the next 10 years. So it's really growing at sort of 15% plus on average, you know, a year to give me a, a good, healthy, long-term return. Right. So um, it sounds like industry is really important. You know, Warren Buffett teaches us to, like you said, only invest in what you know. And I'm very similar there. I'm I'm in tech. That's where I know most about business, like tech companies. I always tell people, ask me anything about pharmaceuticals. Uh, -uh. <laughs> like you with biotech, no way. I don't go there. Um, okay, so then with the let's dive into the financials a little bit since you've got a lot of great experience mm -hmm. in finance. What do you specifically look for in the financials, like margin of safety, um, PDE ratio? What are these things you look for? Um, I'm not worried about the PE ratio. Um, Thank you. I'm not trying to second guess um, the prices in the market. The market prices what it does one day and changes the next. So Mr. Market, Benjamin Graham's Mr. Market is a, an entity I, I understand. I'm, I'm looking for companies with a defensible, sustainable advantage, so a moat. So that's evidenced by companies with very high gross and operating margins, for instance. So they tend to be companies which are cash generative, not heavily exposed to capital investment. 
So obviously software companies fall into that quite nicely. Um, but I'm also, you know, things like semiconductors, if they're in the right market, um, things like actually Visa and MasterCard, fantastic margin structures. I mean, amazing financial businesses. And I do understand obviously a little bit about the finance side of things. So from the income statement point of view, it's uh, high margins, but I also want to look back and see what's been happening to that margin structure over the last five or 10 years. So I tend to get a group of you know, 10Ks and and string out the historic record to have a look and see what that's doing. Uh, On the balance sheet, I'd like to see high cash conversion ratios so that the company is evidencing the company's managing their um, uh, cash cycle properly. I don't like to see a lot of debt. I was looking at McDonald's only because it's got such a fantastic moat. But I did notice that over the last sort of five, six years, the management had increased the gearing in the business to fund the, the share buybacks. And share buybacks, I think, are great things. But when it becomes funded by debt, then you start to think about the management's share options program rather than the returns to shareholders. So I'm, um, that made me a little bit nervous about that. And, and I'm mentioning all these companies not because I'm making recommendations about investments. Yeah. It, they're just examples in the educational explanation of, of how I look at things. And then, yeah, cash flow is really important. Free, I like to see free cash flow. I like to see lots of, of cash which is available to be invested. And I'm not that passionate about dividends, funnily enough. I am going back to Mr. Buffett. I love the fact that he doesn't pay dividends because it's all about capital allocation. And I often refer to the US market as the most efficient and most fantastic capital allocation machine ever invented. And Buffett's an excellent example of that. And I believe management should be able to invest the money in the business is better than I can invest it in different businesses or having to buy more shares or pay tax on dividends. So I love to see the fact that companies don't pay dividends and they're reinvesting the cash in the business to make it even better and grow even faster. So that's a really strong, uh, really strong thing. I, I'm not really that interested in dividend income. I'm much more interested in capital growth. I just had two key call-outs there as I really like your comments there. Uh, well, actually three, I'll go back to PDE. We do not care about PDE as well mm-hmm. within ticker because it can be very misleading. Um, another thing is, yeah, I'm with you on dividends. Dividends, I tell people, if you're in a position where you got a bunch of capital and now you just want to have it sit in a few stocks that are getting market average returns, but get paid to do so, fine, go do that, right? Um, otherwise, that for a big growth strategy to really build your wealth, there's better ways to do it. And I like what you're looking at. Your, your numbers are very much in line with what Ticker looks at, like the lower debt, great free cash, high profit margins, all that good stuff. Um, you're looking at the meaning of the business, which we touched on. You only invest in what you know. And then the moat is big. That's really big. We're big on that. Yeah. What about, what are your thoughts on leadership, like CEOs? What are, what are things you look for in a good leader? Um, well, ethics, uh, intelligence, integrity, energy. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's very difficult if you don't meet these people to sort of judge their characters and their personalities. And they obviously have good PR departments. But, you know, people like um, Steve Jobs, inspirational, visionary, uh, you know, the Bill Gates and the succession of of management at Microsoft. um, Again, where you have very high quality people with with ethics and and a focus on the interest of not just the shareholders. I think it's important that companies have got their employees and their community at stake. I have to admit, being something of a sort of 
you know, 60 plus year old dinosaur. I'm, and this may not resonate with the audience, and I apologize in advance if it doesn't. I'm very less taken by all the ESG stuff. I think a lot of that is very faddish. And I think it can be very distractive for companies. Companies will look after their environments, they will look after their people. Um, they don't need to be dictated to by external parties who are just basically trying to bang their own drum, in my opinion. Um, but I like to see great quality, you know, management. So I watched a lot of the financial news, not because I'm interested in the price changes day to day, but I'm always interested in corporate developments and what companies are saying about what they're doing. So, um, you know, inspiration. And if, again, if you want a, an absolute brilliant example of this, of course, it's Buffett and Munger, where, um, you know, I've read every single one of the, uh, the Berkshire Hathaway letters, uh, some of them twice because the the information you get and the insight you get about the, the character and the personalities of, the, of those two gentlemen uh, is quite remarkable. Thank you for saying that. I I mean, I've been looking at those guys for as long as I can, not as long as you, but but they've been <laughs> a huge inspiration. And I, I agree with you. You can see the personality kind of peppered throughout the the articles, and it's, uh, it's really brilliant. Mm. Um, I do agree with you with the ESG comment. You're right, because we do have a lot of listeners, a lot of investors that get into ESG, and that's fine. That's something we do have in ticker, and we're making improvements to it just to make it uh, easier to find and make it stand out. But there are companies out there, and you've seen it, that uh, they kind of doll up their marketing and make it look yeah. sexy, like they're doing something that's environmentally friendly or something mm -hmm. like that. It's like, it's been, yeah, as I said, doll it up is the best way to put it. <laughs> it's overdone. Yes, yes. We'll keep it, keep it diplomatic. <laughs> right, right. I really like what you're doing there. You're looking at the four M's, we call it. You know, we we always tell people, start with the math. You can do that really quick. Ticker does that for you. And then you want to go to the meeting, moat management, you know. Mm -hmm. So you're doing all those things. That's amazing. Um, I want to talk about, was there a like a particular investment win, like a big win over the last 10, 15 years that you're willing to share? Um, uh, there would have been <laughs> had I held the stock. <laughs> the Microsoft, um, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I uh, Microsoft and Broadcom. I mean, I bought a number of these companies um, in the run up to the dot com bubble bur bursting, and some of them, uh, of course, were. You know, I mean, I had um, I had Cisco and I had something else which was, um, you know, was disastrous. So, you know, my investment performance has been, you know, sort of steady um, in the sense that I've really only been managing this large amount of money for a few years now, and. I wouldn't like to sort of pick out anything because it's all been, you know, I've been a very well. It's been a rising tide for the last couple of years, and then it's been a bit of a a roller coaster. But um, I'm not back to where I was, as it were. Sure. So, you know, had I held the Microsoft shares or the Broadcom shares um, and not sold them, which I could, I just cleared out this little portfolio that I had, the, you know, they would have shown a very good return. And the lesson that, that I learned from that is actually you have to have the time in the market to to make the returns. And, and I don't go into any stock expecting them to, you know, double or treble or quadruple in the next three, four, six months. I mean, I just don't look at it like that. I'm looking at stocks where, and if, frankly, if they go down, and, and often they do, you know, for immediately after you bought them because there's a bit of news or the, there's some comment made sure. on Wall Street. Um, it doesn't matter one jot to me because I'm I still believe if you buy good quality businesses and my largest shareholding is in Berkshire Hathaway and that won't surprise uh, anybody from the comments I've already made 
And I firmly believe that's it's not going to be the, the highest performing investment. And had I held it since 1967, obviously I'd be a much happier chap that um <laughs> uh I didn't I didn't have that age six, I didn't quite have either the capital or the experience. But um it's that mindset, which is I'm not chasing big winners, I'm not chasing 10 baggers, I'm looking at long-term compounding led capital growth from very high quality businesses and and very often very large businesses rather than trying to pick out the next you know tiny little business which is going to become a, a mega cap i i love your case study there on uh, broadcom and microsoft is we have a lot of investors that come to me and they're always looking for the exit points just as much as they are the entry points and i have to ask why why are you wanting to leave this and it's always the fear that it could go down really low. Well, if you invested in a good business in the first place, it's time in the market, not timing. Yeah, not timing. The market. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, my, my view is that I don't intend to sell any of these stocks if I don't need to. Um, right. You know, and actually, I might trim them if I decide I want to have some, you know, income from my portfolios. But I'm never planning to exit them. Right. One of the advantages of having stocks in a what we call over here a self-invested pension plan, which is a bit like a 401k in the, in the United States, is actually it falls outside of the inheritance tax. So I see every possibility of being able to leave a large portion of this portfolio to my children. And um, they will be able to do that without being uh, hammered for tax by the government. But I'm not only that, but I have a, a one-year-old grandson. And when he was born, first thing I did was I gave him inside a tax-protected uh, wrapper, which is an ISA, a junior ISA, I gave him one share of Berkshire Hathaway. And the next birthday, which was last August, I gave him another share of Berkshire Hathaway. And I will continue to do this for the rest of my life. And my message to him, fortunately, his father's very, very smart and financially sophisticated. He works in finance. Um, and my message to him is keep this in your ISA and, you know, enjoy the proceeds when you're 60. Or possibly if they break up Berkshire Hathaway, you may have to redeploy the capital at some point, you know, after you know 10 or 20 years after um, we no longer have the benefit of Mr. Buffett and Mr. Munger. But but the there is no intention to sell this. This is this is a you know a long-term investing strategy. And the next thing I'm thinking about is you know building a little uh, pot of money to give to my daughters, uh, only one of which at the moment has children, and say, right, this is a seed capital for your children's children investments. Mm -hmm. So our son, our grandson is called Remy. So when he has children, I want her to pass this money across and it's been invested from now for those children to then start having that investment capital. Because I've only probably got, I know, 20, 30, 40 years worth, 40 if I'm lucky, I'm 61 years of life. They've got the rest of the century ahead of them. And as you said, it's time in the market, but it's time in the market because the returns compound. And that's how you get a real buildup of wealth through stock market investing. And so that's the the sorts of timeframes that I'm looking at. Yeah. I One key call out I'd like to really emphasize here is the financial education you're passing down to your children. And then, of course, you know, your grandson's a little young to take in the information at one right now, but just wait till he hits like five seven, eight, you know, might start asking some questions and he'll hmm. probably, he's probably going to listen to granddad on a few things. At least I like to think keep him well. awake long enough. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Let's take a quick commercial break. 
Hey, this is Sean. I'd like to say thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast. I know there's a lot of other podcasts you could be listening to, so thanks for taking the time to listen to this one. I have a quick request. If you have a moment, could you please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a five-star review? The reason is the more ratings we get and the higher those ratings are, the more Apple will share us with the world. So thanks in advance for doing that. And then I have a quick comment. If there are any questions you want me to ask the guests, please head over to our ticker Facebook group. You can drop a question right there. I'll go ahead and make a note and I'll do my best to ask that question on the podcast. All right, back to the show. Um, really appreciate your background and your personal journey. I'd like to transition to your what you're doing now, and you're having a ton of fun doing it, which is creating courses. Why don't you talk about the courses a little bit and where people can find those? Yeah, this started because, I, frankly, I wanted to find some way of, of capturing all my knowledge and experience and being able to share it. It has the benefit of acting like a sort of pension pot for me because it's uh, it, the business hits a number of good things. It's highly scalable. I'm building intellectual property. Uh, which has a moat around it and it has the ability because i largely produce evergreen content it has the ability to continue to sell i keep it updated and and things you know going forward so i'm building my own moat and my own sustainable business and my own income stream passive income stream over time but i do it for the joy of the fact that i just love making these courses so um, i've made courses around a number of areas i started off teaching how to make courses i mean funnily enough in the early this is going going back to 2013 you know it was a very young market and what people really needed to learn was how to make courses so I did very well to for a period just doing that I then I've done you know marketing so the things I do I share so I one of the things I do and you'll appreciate from my somewhat English accent that I have a very good face for radio as they say uh, so I, I do voiceover gigs on Fiverr and that's a really I mean again I really just you know enjoy it I've done two this afternoon and that came out of my audio video work for making courses. So I know how to, to handle the audio side. And that's not a scalable business because obviously each, each one is a separate project. But then I realized there was a tremendous demand for courses around finance. At the moment, I've done a, quite a number of courses about financial analysis and about investment banking. Uh, but I'm also, I've realized that a lot of young people, particularly today, don't understand how to build wealth. So I'm writing a course at the moment about how to build wealth. And the the lead into the core part of the course is all about how to make intelligent, um, relatively safe, long-term stock market investments without um, making any big mistakes. And that course will probably end up being five to 10 hours. Um, mm. I predominantly sell my courses on Udemy. And I, and I do this for two reasons. One is that uh, they do all the marketing, which is great. But the other thing is that uh, the Udemy prices, which have been very heavily criticized by many people, particularly instructors who want to make a lot of money out of their courses very quickly, is that the prices on Udemy are extraordinarily reasonable. So I get um, 35% of any sales on Udemy, and the average Udemy sale is about 10 bucks. So I make about $3 a sale per course. And I've got a 14-hour course on how to write a business plan tied into financial strategic education. You think, I'm insane. I should be selling that for thousands. But 
you're very fortunate. You know, you won the, the life lottery, you living in the United States. Uh, had you been born in uh, Bangladesh or in Vietnam or in any parts of Africa or in poorer parts of Latin America, you won't have $100 to spend on a course. You won't have $1,000 to spend on university education mm. or go and get a master's degree. But I've got over 200,000 enrollments in my course. And now I know that in the early days, I was giving a lot away. So I think of about 40,000 of those are completely free, which I'm completely happy about. My goal is to reach a million. And yes, I get a little bit of a return from it. And frankly, the return for the lifestyle that I have, which is relatively modest, and um, you know, we, we like traveling a bit, but I don't have a Ferrari and I don't want a boat and I don't want anything in the, you know, I like a glass of wine, but it doesn't have to be mm -hmm. Chateau Lafitte. And so I make a nice living from the courses, but I feel I'm giving an awful lot back and providing an awful lot of benefit. And it's lovely because on I get messages sometimes on Udemy, but also through people like, you know, come and find me on LinkedIn. And if anybody's listening, come and you know say you heard me on the past podcast, come and find me on LinkedIn, John Colley. And people say, oh, look, I've just done your course and I helped you to get a job or help me to get a promotion. And that means the world to me. I mean, that's really, you know, my little dent in the universe is being slowly chipped out. And I'm very chuffed about all that. And so that's essentially the, the motivation. And, um, you know, if you give me a chance to talk, as you see, I, I'll <laughs> talk, talk the hand legs off a donkey. My wife says, most of the time, people don't know what I'm talking about. But um, hopefully your, your audience is a bit more focused on our, our commentary of interest. I, I love it. And I think the, the audience will love this too. And what I want to do here very shortly is transition to the, the rapid fire round. But um, I really like your background, but also because you come from a, a place where finance can be really complicated, you know, in mergers and acquisitions, investment banking, and it's not for the layman. And then kind of moving into the space where you're now serving the retail investor and serving everybody and making that transition to simplifying education. I absolutely love it. You are, you are solving a big problem. We're trying to do the same thing as make investing easy and approachable for mm -hmm. everybody, right? Mm -hmm. um, before we get to the rapid fire round, is there one like major key takeaway you would like to leave with the audience? Um, I think keep learning, never, ever, ever stop learning. And, you know, the easiest way to do that is obviously reading, but, you know, audio books. I mean, I listen to audio books, you know, all the time. I actually quite like ironing. Now that sounds really sad. And, you know, you know, starts off in the army when you learn to, you have to iron everything in sight, you know, bed covers. And, um, but when I'm ironing, I listen to audio books. And the ironing is very, very sort of calming and therapeutic. There's a lot of Zen in ironing, mm -hmm. but the brain is being engaged, you know, and, and when I do what little exercise I'm doing at the moment, I, I should be doing more exercise. Again, if I go out for a run, I'll listen to an audio book. So you can access knowledge in so many different ways uh, so easily. And if you're interested in finance, then, you know, just systematically read around the subject. And if you don't want to read, you know, heavy textbooks, but you can think, read things like Benjamin Graham, uh, The Intelligent Investor. But, but if you read biographies, you'll often learn as much in the lessons of the biographies as you would from a heavy vaunted textbook. And because you're learning from stories rather than from you know, academic treaties, they tend to be much more easy to absorb, much more engaging and, and enjoyable. So 
I just exhort everybody, become a, a lifelong learner. Never, ever think you've learned enough. Um, I did promise myself that after I did my MBA, I would never take another exam again. But that learning has nothing to do with, with examinations. It's, it's much more fun when you can learn without having to do the exams. Right, right on. I totally agree. All right, let's transition to the rapid fire round. This is where we get to find out who John really is. Uh, very scary. <laughs> <laughs> I was waiting for a reaction like that. Um, if you can try to answer each question in about 15 seconds or less. You ready? Okay. Mm -hmm. All right. What is your favorite podcast? Okay. The uh, I haven't listened to many podcasts for a little while, but the one that I listened to more than any other, uh, and which really gave me uh, actually great inspiration for us was um, Entrepreneur on Fire by, with John Lee Dumas, who actually I interviewed for my podcast when I was doing my podcast. So Entrepreneur on Fire, tick. Nice. All right. So what is a recent book you read and would recommend? The, the book I'd pushed forward is uh, The Snowball by Alice Schroeder which is about two inches thick, and it's the biography of Warren Buffett. And any aspiring investor, it's a wonderful read, beautifully written, and they'll learn an awful lot about investing and the whole approach that Buffett takes just by reading that book. Right on. All right, we've got a fun one here. What is your favorite movie? Well, I wanted to include nine, and you said I couldn't. Um, because I'm I'm a, I'm a Star Wars junkie, um, so I love Star Wars. I actually love Lego as well, and I'm going you know, to make Star Wars Lego. So um, I'd have to say it's the original Star Wars movie, which I think is now Episode Four, A New Hope. But yeah, um, yeah, Star Wars every day of the week, and the original one is I think the best and always will be. I I had to put the pressure on you there because there <laughs> there there nine fun films some. Some better than the others, but you're right. I mean, 1977, New Hope, changed the game of sci-fi. Yeah. yeah, awesome. All right, we got a few business questions here. What is the the worst advice you ever received? Um, th this was this was a, a, a difficult one. I think any anything around going to work for the government. So um, there were, you know, I was army barmy from the age of about six. And um, nobody ever really sat me down and explained why it wasn't a good idea for, to work, you know, for the big man in particularly in a what was then a contracting organization. So um, never work for the government, I think, is or, you know, is is probably the the, the worst advice or, or working for the government is a really, really bad advice. It took me a while to work that one out. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Well, let's flip that equation. What is the best advice you ever received? Don't work for the government. <laughs> Do what you're really <laughs> passionate about. Now, I it was it was realizing that um, you know I I really had to follow my my passion, which was um, and, and I'm not talking about a hobby. I'm talking about the fact that I like to. Uh, be engaged, my, have my brain engaged rather than my hands. I'm not, I'm, you know, I mean, I've changed tank engines in 30 degrees, minus 30 degrees on exercise up to my eyeballs in mud and hated every minute of it. Um, whereas if you sit down and ask me to write um, a complex financial model, you know, I'm, I'm as happy as Larry, you know, just zone in and off I go. <laughs> I love I'm not it, sure John. if I'm really answering answering the question, but that, um, yeah, I is still entertaining nonetheless. That was brilliant. Mm. All right, yeah. now we have the time machine question. If you could go back in time to give your younger self advice, what age would you visit, and what would you say? I would go back to just after I um, 
became an army officer. So just after I graduated from our military academy, your, 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 you have West Point, we have the Royal Military Academy, Sandhurst. And um, I was already then interested in finance. I was reading the Financial Times. And I would go back to myself and say, start to learn and understand the power of compounding. Because had I done that, um, then uh, every investment decision I made from that point forward uh, would have been influenced by uh, understanding how I can harness compounding to my advantage. And I was at that stage, I was um, 22 years old. And I think that would have been the, the most valuable thing. And that's one of the things I try to um, get across to young people. When I talk to my children's um, friends and things, um, I try to get around to the subject of compounding and tell them a few funny stories about how many times you have to fold a piece of paper to get to the moon. And the answer is 46. Um, you can't actually fold a piece of paper 46 times. No. But theoretically, if you did a one millimeter piece of paper 46 times and doubled it every time, you'd get to the moon with it. And and the, the power of compounding is something it took me a long time to understand. But the younger you are and you that you can grasp it, and then I could have I could have made so many better decisions if right. I had un really understood um how that works. Thank you for landing on that last point. Compound interest, it truly is. You know, some people say the eighth wonder of the world. It the is world. In yeah. incredible. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, way to bring it home. All right, where can people reach you? Um, I have a website, but to be honest, I don't do very much on it, um, jbdcolley.com. The best way to, you can find me on LinkedIn. I'm on LinkedIn a lot. Um, just look for my name, John Colley. And if you look for my name, John Colley, on Udemy, um, you can uh, find my courses there. Uh, I'm not trying to sell them to you. If you want to go and get them, that's great, but you'll be able to get them really affordably. And I hope that um, you'll enjoy them. You know, and I'll make a, a couple of dollars, but frankly, that's not really why I'm I'm sending you there, because because I want to 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 share the uh, the experience and the knowledge that I have, and and give you something which will hope hopefully help you in your financial journey. Oh God, the journey word. Never mind. Um, uh, along the way, <laughs> so um, check me out on Udemy. Jeff, De definitely say uh, you heard me on the podcast and come and and connect with me on LinkedIn, and I'll connect with you. And always happy to to give advice to to people if they ask me simple questions. I don't give investing advice. I don't give company recommendations, but I'll always talk about the how and the why, uh, if not exactly the what. Yeah, yeah. Give them the education. They can make their own educated decisions. Absolutely. Right, yeah. right. Mm -hmm. um, quick call out here, um, listeners. I'm going to put in a link to John's Udemy page. Mm -hmm. And I see you've got dozens of videos here, it looks like. And 118,000 students yeah. um, and over 9,000 reviews. So no joke, you're, yeah. you're, yeah. I have a YouTube channel as well, John Colley. You can find me on that sure. and you can get all that for free, obviously. And there's, you know, there was content on there, which you'll, you'll find interesting. I hope. Right on. Well, thank you so much for your time. I love this episode. Love the interview. Thanks for joining me. No, it's been a wonderful experience. Um, I love Ticker. I really enjoy your company profiles and your reviews. And um, I, I think your methodology uh, is is particularly fascinating because it's so, and you're very open about how it all works. So it's very easy and clear to understand. And I think for somebody who d doesn't have the benefit of my experience but wants to learn about finance i think it's a fantastic platform to to learn from and i thank you for putting all the hard work in to make it possible yeah thank you we'll see you john yeah cheerio good to talk to you
Hey, I'd like to say thank you for checking out this podcast. I know there's a lot of other podcasts you could be listening to, so thanks for spending some time with me. Also, if you have a moment, could you please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review? The more reviews we get, the more Apple will share this podcast with the world. So thanks for doing that. And last thing, if you do hear any stocks mentioned on this podcast, please keep in mind, this podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Please do not make a buy or sell decision based solely on what you hear. All right. Thanks for your time. We'll talk to you later. See ya.